0: Welcome to Conversations on Healthcare. This week we welcome former NAACP Chair Ben Jealous, new Director of the Sierra Club, who is taking his lifelong
1: quest for equity to the fight to combat climate change. We are at a tipping point in our economy and the $300 billion in the IRA is exactly this type of force that we need to tip our economy in the right direction. We're creating more and more jobs by industries that save the planet rather than ones that kill it. Now, here are your hosts, Mark vaselli and Margaret Flinter.
2: Our guest is active in the most important issues of our time, police brutality, climate change, and equity. And as you're about to learn, he brings a unique and powerful voice to help all of us understand these topics.
0: Benjamin Jealous is the new executive director of the Sierra Club. It's America's largest and most influential grassroots environmental organization with nearly 4 million members and supporters. He has had a distinguished career in activism that he's putting to use now to save the planet.
2: Well, Ben, welcome to Conversations on Healthcare.
1: Thank you. It's good to be here.
2: Yeah. And of course, we want to address the environment, but you used to lead the NAACP, and we think it's essential to start with the death of Tyree Nichols in Memphis. There are louder and louder calls for police reform to deal with what's seen as a systemic issue in law
1: enforcement. Uh, tell us what should be done. We have to get right to the root of the problem, which is frankly how law enforcement started it in this country tells us how it needs to be shifted. Law enforcement throughout our country started as a colonial project. In some areas it was slave patrols, in other areas it was red coats, in other areas it was Spanish colonial forces. Some places it was the U.S. Cavalry. Why is that important? Because we do such little training on things like use of force, just one day at the Average Academy, for instance, that it's actually the culture of the department that defines how force is used, even more than the law itself. And it's time for us to press pause and ask, what do we need to keep us safe in the 21st century? Towns that have done that, places like uh, where Cornell University's based, Ithaca, have figured out a couple of things. One is you don't actually need police for traffic stops. A lot of the worst things happen during traffic stops. We use meter maids for meters. We can use people who are unarmed for traffic stops. And frankly, that would take care of a lot. Something else they've figured out is that about three quarters of the people who apply to be officers come from the one tenth of the American population that has an authoritarian personality, that has the type of personality that needs the person feels a need to be respected no matter what. And that's a lot of what you saw in that video mm-hmm. was was officers demanding that Tyree simply do what he's told, whether it's right or not, whether it's just or not. And that's a real problem. Uh, the city of Ithaca, the last eight years has added a second psychological test with a lie detector to detect people who have authoritarian personalities and three out of for officers to apply. They have to turn down for that reason. But what they've seen is they don't get the same complaints that they do against the, the group of officers who were selected prior to that change. When you can actually recruit people with a spirit to serve and not a spirit for adventure, uh, you just get better, better uh, results. And when you, frankly, use other traffic professionals to stop people, not folks with guns, uh, not folks with a license to kill, Uh, you don't get the extreme problems uh, that this represents.
0: Well, thank you, uh, Ben, so much for those insights. Uh, And we seem to be seeing a real shift uh, in the public's perception. We wanted to get your reactions to a Politico morning consult poll. Uh, They showed three quarters of registered voters consider police violence against the public to be a very or at least somewhat serious problem. And 62 percent think that police violence against black people is widespread and it's common. It seems like lawmakers can't ignore that kind of public sentiment, uh, except perhaps at their own peril. And I'm, I'm wondering what your thoughts are on this. Do you think that we'll see new legislation forthcoming?
1: I think that we will. I think that we'll see increasing consensus. One of the things that we need to do is to make sure, honestly, that cases of police abuse are visible, regardless of the complexion of the victim. In the black community, we are very well organized, and we have a special problem, and we uh, make sure that there's attention to it. But when you look at the statistics, there's a lot of unnecessary police abuse against white people against Latino people, against Asian Americans, against Native Americans. And it's disproportionately against low-income people of all colors. In any of those communities, it tends to be low-income people who get the most abuse. We've got to have the full face of the problem visible so people understand this isn't just about making Black people more safe. It's ultimately about making all of us more safe.
2: Well, I think that's a a really good point. Uh, It's about all of us, uh, and there's a a rainbow of colors. But racism uh, courses through uh, our society in a negative way, and the American Public Health Association, many others say racism is a public health crisis. Uh, And you stated we can end racism, and I just want to connect back to your first answer, which is really talking about this long history of racism. And I'm wondering what your ideas are of how we can end racism and what the steps we need to take will be for our society.
1: Yeah, you know, again, just to kind of bridge from what we were just talking about, I wanna be really clear that the reports on police violence, uh, the studies, the live subject studies done by professors like Phil Goff at the uh, John Jay College of Criminal Justice City University of New York, shows that when somebody's killed, it's actually authoritarian behavior, far more than implicit bias or racism, that's determinative in whether or not somebody's killed. An officer who rates high in authoritarianism, but low when it comes to racism, low in implicit bias, is, is, is very likely to kill you. When it's the opposite, they're much less likely to kill you. And so when we're dealing with a public health crisis of this case, police violence against unarmed civilians, uh, you know, unjustified. Um, we've just got to be clear on what we're dealing with. When and, it comes and, to- Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, no, when it, you know, when it- Racism uh, absolutely impacts health in all sorts of ways, some of them surprising, like the magical belief that Black people need less pain medication that many, that many doctors seem to have. You know, with that said, at the end of his life, Dr. King was trying to get us to all recognize that Racism, in addition to being like a boot on the back of Black people, if you will, is ultimately a wedge that's used to divide our society. And then the process is used to maintain mass poverty because people at the bottom of our economy are unable to come together across that line of racial division. And that's why, our, you know, as I discussed in my book, Never Forget Our People Were Always Free, you see it's a change in the definition of race and of racism in the early 1700s, 100 years after the experiment starts down in Virginia. Prior to that, race was a word for tribe. After that, race was part of this fiction, this pseudoscientific fiction that there were multiple human races and that Black people were somehow subhuman. And so we've got to understand both sides of that. Yes, this is used to oppress people. It's also used to divide people. And everybody who's trapped in poverty pays a price for it. And while there's, 16 million in change whites trapped in poverty, about 8 million blacks. And that's important, too.
2: But, at, but in the issue of the health, uh, I, we just had Dr. Lewis Sullivan on our show, who graduated in 1954, the year of Brown versus the famous landmark case. And he noted that there were 2% black physicians in the country at that time. And today there are 5%. Seems like there's a real structural uh, limitation in terms of making sure that there are people like me that I see who are providing me health care. It seems to be very entrenched. Wondering what your thought about how how do we break through that? Uh, Because that's a long-term challenge for us, and it doesn't seem like we're making any progress from 1954 to 2023. That's not the type of increase that we would expect.
1: Yes. You know, it's... uh... You know, we see down in Florida, you get kind of get a hint on it. The governor of Florida wants to you know, ban teaching of black history in high schools, AP-level black history. What he doesn't want to talk about is that under his t- tenure the state schools, I think have gone from around 30th to around 35th in the country. And, and so when we're talking about things like creating doctors in the black community, you can't separate it from the fact that our, com- that, that our community is disproportionately poor. And so you deal with hurdles that are related to race and discrimination of people based on color, but you're also dealing with hurdles often much bigger that that are based on the systematic undereducation of poor people of all colors in our society. And what makes it hard to really understand it is that our country is much more comfortable talking about racism than we are talking about the continued discrimination and obstacles for the poor to really realize their full potential, Mm -hmm. make their full contribution to society. And when you study for whites, when you actually control for poverty, you see that a lot of these hurdles are just simply much more universal. And so Dr. Sullivan's right. We do need to deal with the racial barriers that are there. there. I teach at the University of Pennsylvania. It is heartbreaking to hear what Black students are subjected to, the way that they're isolated from other students, because, again, of these lingering notions that somehow Black people are less intelligent or less capable. And that's heartbreaking, and it's wrong. And yet, We, you know, such a high percentage of the black community has been trapped in poverty so long. We would be fools if we thought that the only barriers uh, are racial discrimination. It's also simply the systematic undereducation of children in low-income families in this country.
0: Well, Ben, I'd like to talk with you now about the environment. Um, The Sierra Club uh, committed to retiring coal plants, preventing new fossil fuel plants from being built, working to stop the expansion. A fracked guess, uh, but we all recently heard former Vice President Al Gore with his usual complete passion pointing out that despite so many efforts, emissions are still going up. As you tackle uh, your new role, what are your thoughts? Why are we not making more progress to save the planet?
1: You know, we fundamentally have to decide that this is a problem that, we, that we're going to fix as a nation. And for a lot of people, they agree the environment is important, but it doesn't write in their top three or four issues. And so part of what I'm focused on is simply building a bigger, more robust movement, more inclusive movement, and helping us connect the dots. so many places in this country, we're worried about floods. You know, The 100-year flood seems to come every year. Uh, and we're not having real conversations about the opportunities we have to actually slow down climate change, stop climate change, Uh, We at the Air Club have run the most effective campaign in the country when it comes to slowing down climate change. We've shut down more than 250 uh, coal-fired power plants. What I'm excited about now is that we are both focused on stopping, shutting all of them down, stopping the expansion, and at the same time, really investing in industries that promise to, quite frankly, create jobs while helping us save the planet. We have huge, like some states right now, six year backlogs in getting new solar panels installed, um, getting new solar farm, you know, power farms up. We're focused on cutting that red tape. Uh, We as a country need a a greater sense of urgency. And I'm hopeful, quite frankly, that the Inflation Reduction Act, the associated infrastructure bill, all the resources there for building new industry, for expanding solar and wind capacity uh, will ultimately have Al Gore uh, happier in a few years. I think we're (laughs) turning that corner right
2: now. Well, let me pull the thread on the the Inflation Reduction Act because the Sierra Club was very influential in supporting the Biden administration. I think we had uh, Margaret uh, Bill McGibbon on just before that passed, who's a John Muir recipient from the Sierra Club, uh, obviously a, a great person. Talking about really the benefits, significant benefits in climate change uh, that were part of this act. Um, and how are we going to wisely spend this $300 billion committed to climate change in the law? I, I say that in the context of reading uh, that the oil companies have reported $120 billion of profit. That sounds like it's going to be an enormous fight to have. They have the resources to do what they want. What are your
1: thoughts? Yeah, no, we're, we're going to have to stand firm against them. And you know, quite frankly, they have been relentless in seeking to open up new drilling. And, and if we let them do that, uh, it will absolutely keep the planet accelerating uh, towards its death. The good news is, quite frankly, we are at a tipping point in our economy. And the bill, the $300 billion in the IRA, frankly, you get up to over a trillion when you include the associated infrastructure bill and, and the loan funds, is exactly the the, the type of Force that we need to, to tip our economy in the right direction, where we're creating more and more jobs by industries that save the planet rather than ones that kill it. And what the oil and gas industry knows is that their days are are, are numbered. They're trying to um, extend them as as far as as they can, uh, but their concerns about peak oil are real. And quite frankly, the awareness that uh, they are setting up a very destructive situation on planet Earth. Uh, I think people are increasingly aware of. So, you know, we used to just fight to stop things. Now we get to fight to also accelerate the building of industries that will create new jobs and make it possible to sustain our planet. Some of those new
2: jobs are widening highways, uh, which is sort of counterintuitive to the the, uh, fight against fossil fuels. How do you? No, there are,
1: look, there are block grant funds in there that can be used exactly in the wrong way. Uh, And where people are trying to do that, like in Wisconsin, for instance, we are right there pushing back. Mm -hmm. Uh, We will spend a lot of energy, honestly, helping state officials, county officials, city officials across this country. We're the the only group that can do it because we're so big. And we're in every state and we're in most metropolitan areas, helping them understand that the money's there and how to best use it to have the best impact. Unfortunately, some of the infrastructure bill block grants, some of the IRA block grants were, were... Written so wide and you know, so broadly, they can absolutely be misused. But that's where citizens got to stand up and make sure that their local officials do the right thing.
0: Well, it's so important that you have uh, people on the ground uh, in every state and in these uh, areas uh, where these meetings are happening. But uh, I understand you're also taking part in a listening campaign. We certainly know young people are a key to climate activism. We've been inspired by uh, Greta Thunberg, as has just about everybody else, I think, who's uh, ever listened to her. But what are young supporters telling you? Are you hearing anything that surprises you? Are there new messages and what people are asking you to do among our young people?
1: Yeah, I think a lot of young activists are heartened by the fact that we can finally see a future the planet we've there are things we have to do that every nation has to do but there's a path there um i just got back from being in seattle with a bunch of young people who quite frankly fell in love with the outdoors during during covid and it's really led them into greater activism and and that gives me you know frankly a, a great sense of hope you know our theory at the sierra club for 130 years is The more people you get into the most beautiful places in the outdoors, the more people we will have that are committed to saving the planet, to preserving the wild places and wildlife. And it's nice to see that cycle continuing to work with today's young people and to know that COVID in an odd way helped to speed it up.
2: Interesting. You know, I want to get back to the young people and their activism. When you were younger uh, and led the NAACP, not that you're old now, but it just yeah. uh, you were- right, I just turned 50, so my
1: can card shut up. It's definitely just, exactly, like, did, just yeah. feel like you've been declared <laughs> old. Yeah, sure, so.
2: But the NAACP, <laughs> its climate justice program issued a report assessing the impact of the nation's nearly 400 coal power plants on people of color in low-income communities. And now you're getting involved- as you've said, in local campaigns around industrial pollution, power grid, which really, again, affect vulnerable populations. In addition to getting young people into the right physical environment, what are your other thoughts about how do we empower those without political power? And that's just not young people. That's sort of a of a writ large. So many people feel this is too large. I don't know what I can do because this problem is so large. How can I meaningfully be engaged?
1: Yeah, The good news is that there's Need for people to be engaged. Literally, every place in this country, the the front line of fighting climate change runs through every state capital, it runs through every county government, it runs through every city government, and so people can really take on sort of the jurisdiction that uh, that they feel comfortable with. They feel like they can have an impact in, and showing up and speaking out really does make a difference. I think as organizers, we often take the old for granted at our peril. You know, the activists at any point in American history tend to come from around or below university age or around or above retirement age, because both groups perceive themselves as having disposable time, and both are eager to, to change the planet. One's about to take control of it, want it to improve. One's about to leave it and find their legacy. And, and as I move into being sort of amongst the elders, if you will, um, I'm just kind of increasingly reminded of our responsibility to organize multi-generationally, mm-hmm. to not take the old for granted, and and we see again the real hope uh, because as this moves, you know, when I was in Congress, it was easy for people to feel disconnected. Big Bill has to get through Congress. What can I do from here? But now that the decisions are being made at every city council, at at every county government, at every state government, there's just a, a role for everybody to to play. So I encourage people to go to crclub.org, sign up. Uh, and get active with us and we'll plug you in where you are and how you wanna be involved.
0: Well, Ben, I'm gonna give you an opportunity to maybe focus on another uh, large uh, sector, if you will, uh, within the country that can make a difference. Our audience is uh, made up of many people who work in, practice in, or get their healthcare in community health centers around the country. 30 million people from 1,300 organizations, 9,000 sites. What can they do? Uh, to address health equity, climate justice, racism. Do you see that as another lever that uh, can be activated to try and make a difference on these issues?
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's so many things to be done with community health clinics and the people who rely on them. I have family members who do, and we're very supportive of total health care in Baltimore, which is a federally funded health clinic. And one, honestly, is to really speak up about what has impacted them, what has impacted their families if people are coming in with kids with asthma, uh, and actually drawing the connection for those city council person, making them understand that, that their constituents get it, that, for example, if you're in West Baltimore, total Healthcare is the federally funded health clinic that serves that area. We still have a trash incinerator that blows right over West Baltimore, a bunch of incinerated trash. And it goes right into the lungs of young people. It drives up the asthma. Still. So, operating buses uh, that, um, you know, are dirty buses spewing out things that irritate people's respiratory system. Both of those are problems that can be fixed. We have the power to generate power for this region without relying on burning trash. And we have the power to, to power buses and funds in the Inflation Reduction Act and associated bills to uh, buy buses for cities, so they can drive through those neighborhoods and not worth and you know the asthma epidemic. So I would include, you know, encourage people to take a moment to think about how their government might be able to make sure at least that the next generation didn't have to cope with what they, they've had to cope with, uh, the things that keep them coming back to the clinic in many cases, and speak out and get involved.
2: Now, I really like the optimism of we have the power and people need to under connect themselves to that. I think our audience knows that this is Black History Month, and you've written about your family's own history in your new book. First of all, congratulations. Uh, The title is Never Forget Our People, We're Always Free, A Parable of American Healing. I wonder if you could just share with our audience, you've had such a remarkable life with such an incredible arc, always working towards justice and, and doing the right thing with so many world figures. But tell us about the book and also your family roots.
1: This book was quite a journey for me. In the middle of writing it, I figured out that we, our family was cousins to Robert E. Lee. And I just, my head kind of exploded. head had the NAACP. <laughs> <That's> like, it's <laughs> kind of like the last person you expect to find the in fi- the family tree anywhere uh, was the head of the Confederate army. Um, but there he was. And it really forced me to kind of wrestle with the fact that we are much more of an American family than we realize. We are much more connected than we realize. Barack Obama and I are both cousins to Dick Cheney, the former Vice President <laughs> Dick Cheney, and separately through different, you know, branches of family trees. My book is really written with an urgent desire to help us see how much we have in common, including mm-hmm. the struggles that we face. The one thing that's thought to be unique in this country is handgun deaths. that really uniquely impacts uh, Black people, young Black men. And yet we don't even talk about the fact that there is a higher rate of suicide amongst old white men than there is homicide amongst young black men. The two things, by the way, what drives that suicide rate, what drives that homicide rate, the factors, there's a lot that actually overlap, including that both tend to go up in the wake of areas uh, where factories have been closed, for instance. Uh, And, and so what I, one of the things I talk about in the book when it comes to health is the importance of showing the full face of a problem. When we pretend that the poor, for example, are all or mostly black, um, public opinion shifts in a negative way towards everything public, including public health. When we show the full face, when we show that that uh, there are twice as many whites in poverty as blacks, for instance, as far as the numbers, sixteen million in change versus eight million in change. When the photographs reflect that full diversity, public opinion shifts in a positive way because people see themselves reflected in the problem. An example of that uh, is the opiate uh, epidemic, pandemic, really, in our country. For the longest time, we pretended like it was just a Black problem, and and the response was, this is criminal, and we need to lock these people up. And then, as it shifted into the middle of the country, as trucking routes from Mexico as a result of NAFTA opened up and and we saw heroin pouring into the middle of the country, not coming in exclusively to the ports as it had been historically. A bunch of sheriffs wrestling with uh, opiate overdoses en masse for the first time decided to start publishing photographs of the corpses of the people who had died. And you know, drug abuse is pretty constant across racial groups, and what people saw for the first time were all of the young white people that were dying from heroin, that were dying from overdosing on pills. And then public opinion shifted. This wasn't just simply a criminal scourge that needs to be dealt with. This is now a health crisis. It's a crisis of addiction and what we need is rehab. And so you know, that's part of what gives me hope is that the American people, when the media actually shows them the, the true scope of the problem, respond in a logical way. Unfortunately, when we allow racism to continue to cloud how we communicate and what images we show, well, that can have a negative uh, impact too as it, as it has in this country for centuries. Right.
0: Well, Ben, maybe a little bit of a philosophic question. I, I know that you had an early experience growing up in Northern California with the beautiful Redwoods. Uh, I understand your home uh, today is in a designated bird sanctuary. Uh, and I'm curious with the, the the weight of the issues that you have decided to make your life's work uh, and to tackle. Uh, how, how does all of that influence your your stamina your courage your ability to tackle these major issues of our times what's what's the benefit of that exposure and intimacy with nature and what's your message to young people about all of that or not to young people all people <laughs> yeah you story, know that is
1: yeah you know a couple of things I And mean, one as my whole life kind of comes full circle i i um started out organizing when i was a kid against clear cut and redwoods uh, i had um, as you reference, uh, grown up camping in them and literally camping inside. Redwoods draw their water through their branches. They draw it from the clouds more than from the ground. So when lightning strikes, the base will burn out and it creates a cave that the tree continues to grow around. Native Americans would sleep in them when they were hunting. Uh, as Europeans came, European hunters slept in them. And as a child, I camped out in them. And when I heard that they were clear cutting redwood for us, I got pretty outraged as a young teenager and got involved then. It's nice to come back to this moment. But what a life lived in the outdoors has taught me is that the outdoors really is the best place for young people, for all people to learn leadership. And what really defines a leader is the habit of getting more calm when everybody else is freaking out around you. And what the woods and what the water teaches you is that if you freak out in the woods or you freak out in the water, you can die pretty quickly. You can die for exposure. You know, a quarter mile from the road if you're lost in the woods at night, you can drown in a matter of minutes on the water, even if you thought uh, you were a great swimmer. And so you know, that's why I, that's uh, part of why my parents raised me in the woods. It's part of why I raised my kids in the woods, is that if you're going to raise strong kids, it's important uh, to really teach them how to manage their anxiety. And there's no better teacher than the wilderness. Oh, that's great.
2: Ben, I want to thank you for joining us. I want to congratulate you on this new book and encourage all of our listeners to uh, pick it up uh, and also for your new position at the Sierra Club, but more importantly, your voice of trying to find the common thread that unites all of us together as we fight through these difficult things. And also thanks to our audience for being with us. You can learn more about conversations on healthcare and sign up for our email updates at chcradio.com. Ben, thank you so much. Thank you. God bless you. I'm Mark Maselli.
0: And I'm Margaret Flinter. Peace and health. Conversations on Healthcare is recorded in the Knowledge and Technology Center studios in Middletown, Connecticut, and is brought to you by the Community Health Center, now celebrating 50 years of providing quality care to the underserved, where healthcare is a right, not a privilege. CHC1.com and CHCradio.com.